have been walking through the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, head over to Philippians. And I mentioned it last week. My hope is that you would continue reading through Philippians. It's, it's not that long. So if you haven't been following along or if you just jumped in with us today, totally okay. Start going through Philippians because you are going to see things, hear things, discover things. God's going to nudge you in some areas that may not have anything to do with what God nudges on my heart to share to share each week. So, man, I would encourage you, keep walking through the book of Philippians. It's a great place to start, very applicable, very practical. And the area we're going to be in is going to be focusing on Philippians chapter 4. Now, as you're getting there, before we jump into it, I recognize something this, this last weekend especially. Uh, we're, getting, we're getting in that fall season, obviously, and for Forsyth County Schools, fall break has started. Dawson County Schools, we finally get our very own fall break here in a couple weeks, which is a first thing for us. I mean, we're very excited. Well, three of us are excited for a fall break. <laughs> yeah, that means I don't have to wake up as early to get my kids to school and all that, but you, you start to see something happen around these types of breaks. You're going to see it as we get closer to Christmas. It definitely happens around the summer is when you're scrolling through your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever social media platform you're on, you start to notice certain things. For example, let me show you a friend of mine who uh, posted this here uh, over the weekend. This is a friend of mine, Doug. He actually is on staff with us. And look at Doug's Facebook post. So let me tell you how that made me feel. I'm scrolling through, minding my own business, and, and posting things on social media as far as, oh, you know, our kids are at school today, and I'm going to be at church on Sunday, which I'm really pumped about, by the way. And I see Doug's post, and I see Doug, and I'm like, boy, that, that looks like fun. But it doesn't end there, does it? I find myself just staring at Doug's Facebook post. And it moves from, that sounds like fun, to I hate Doug. <laughs> and then it changes some more from, that looks like fun, to I hate Doug, to now I just hate my life. <laughs> and this is why I'm trying to prepare for a sermon for this weekend. I'm like, I, I really do love y'all, and I love being here, but let's be honest, would you rather be on that boat for a week with Doug? I would be too. <laughs> And, and you're all here, so I'm assuming you're not on the boat with Doug either. So I've, I discovered something in Philippians 4 that is just for the people not on the boat with Doug this week. This message is not for Doug at all. He doesn't even know I'm talking about him right now because he's on a boat for a week. So this is for us non-boat people for this whole week. But, but there's, there is something interesting that happens with us when we see something like that. There's a word there, discontentment, isn't it? We're not content anymore. I was fine until I saw what Doug was going to do. I thought I had a great weekend planned until I saw what Doug was going to be doing for his week. right? And it's interesting, especially in our culture today, where it's possible, I don't have the numbers to support this, but just from my observation, I believe discontentment is as high as it may have ever been. Which is interesting because we have more now than any other culture in history. We have access to so much more. We have so many more opportunities, especially in our area. So how is it that discontentment could potentially be at its all-time high when our ability and availability to have so much is also at an all-time high? Now, I mean, we, we could spend all sorts of time taking guesses at it, and I don't think social media is the reason, but it is interesting to link those two together, that 
because of our highly connected society, we now have information about other people that we have never had before. You get a window, you get a glimpse into other people's lives that you have never had before. People have the ability to put their life on display like never before. And in those moments, be it Instagram, Facebook, or whatever, we see what we've never seen before. Therefore, we begin to want what we've never really thought we wanted before. And what's interesting about the social media phenomenon, especially in, 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 that, in that context, is we begin to have this discontent feeling, this envy, this jealousy come out of seeing what other people are doing. And it's interesting because even somebody who posts on social media, I post pretty regularly on, on Instagram, and I'll tell you what I don't post. I don't post the bad things in my life, ever. What I do post is all the picture-perfect things that I want you to think happen all the time. Right? It's like, wow, look how great me and my kids are. I can't show you the other 99% of my life, though. Right? So we look on Instagram, we look on Facebook, we look at all that's happening, and we're seeing these picture-perfect filtered moments and comparing them to our reality, our current reality, and we get so discouraged. Why don't they match up. Why is my life not as perfect as theirs? Why aren't my kids as perfect as theirs? Why don't I get to go on a boat for a week like Doug? That's what we start to say. There's actually a word for this now. They didn't need a word for this, but there's actually a, a, a research psychological word for this. It's called Facebook envy. Like that's a thing. Not making that up. It is a thing. Facebook envy. And here's what research has found. That after this study, of, they had individuals look at Facebook specifically for 20 minutes. They just said, scroll through Facebook. Don't comment, but just scroll through your newsfeed for 20 minutes. And here's what they discovered. After 20 minutes of scrolling through Facebook, individuals had two feelings. Envy and a sense of failure. Interesting. Envy. I want what they want. I wish I had what they want. I wish my life mirrored their life. And a sense of failure because we're not matching up to what we see everybody else seemingly be part of. The facade of our culture is causing us to have an all-time high level of discontent. So Philippians 4 actually speaks to this. And it is all in Paul's response to life. If you've been with us, you know that Paul's situation it's not a good situation. It's not a situation that he would be blasting all over social media. Hey, check me out. I'm in prison again, right? Still here, day 492, however long he was in there, right? What, what, we, what we see, though, is Paul's amazing response. He becomes like this master at responding in a Christ-like way, regardless of life situations. And he tries to explain that and encourage the early Christians to respond in a similar fashion. He says, doesn't matter what your life is going through, doesn't matter your situations, but throughout Philippians especially, he talks a lot about joy and rejoicing, and he closes in chapter 4 with, here's how to actually do that. You've probably heard this phrase that life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you, do you know it? respond to it, right? And I would, say, I would argue that there's a lot of truth to that, but in reality, we tend to live the opposite, where we live like all of this stuff happens to us and we really can't do anything about it as far as our response is concerned. We might not be able to change the circumstance or the situation, but our response, we, we have control over how we respond. And as I said, Paul is a master at responding in a Christ-like way. 
regardless of what the world around him is saying and doing, he is able to respond in a way that Jesus says, here's how I want you to respond. So that's what I want us to look at. How can we respond more like Paul and ultimately more like Jesus when we're looking at the world around us and thinking, man, we're not measuring up. I've got so much discontentment in my life. I, I wish and I want because I see what everybody else has or at least appears to have and what their life and their life tends to work out and they don't have any problems and everything is perfect in their life. And I see people posting all of their workouts online. You're not helping me. Good. That, that's a whole side thing, right? <laughs> it's like you will never see me post anything about my workout because I don't work out. If I do, you should be worried. Something's wrong in Brian's life. <laughs> what has changed? Why is he posting it anyway? Anyway, if you post on social media for your workouts, good for you. Anyway. <laughs> little jab for you. All right, to the Bible. All right. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And again, remember Paul's situation. He is in prison or under house arrest. He has lost his freedom for preaching the gospel. And here's what he says towards the end of his letter to the church of Philippi. Verse 11 out of chapter 4. He said, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Interesting. I would have thought he would have been very much in need. He says, for I have learned, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write down or underline or circle that word learned. He didn't just get it. He wasn't born with it. He doesn't just have it. He didn't discover it yet. He had to learn it. He says, for I have learned to be, and what's this word? Content. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. No, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Oh, man, we could just end there and go home. I have learned to be content. Doesn't mean his circumstance changed and therefore I'm content. It says, I have learned to be content whatever, whatever the circumstances. He goes on, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, pause there. Don't read ahead. He's showing I've been there in both of those situations. I've been in life where it's great and I, I have everything that I want. And I've been in moments of life where I have absolutely nothing. He says, I've been in both. And he says, and I've discovered something and therefore I've learned it over time. I've learned how to be content regardless of what's happening around me. Regardless of what I see when I scroll through, I have learned how to remain content. He even goes as, as far as to say, I've learned the secret to being content. Like, it's a, it's a secret. Most people don't know this. They haven't figured this out. They've not discovered this yet. And he says, I want to share with you this secret I've discovered and learned about being content. And here it is, verse 13. Many of you might have heard this one growing up if you were in church. Verse 13 says, I can do all this through him. Who's the him? Who are we talking about? Jesus, yes. I can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything. I can make it through everything, whether on this side of life or on this side of life, whether completely in need or completely having no needs. He says, regardless of the situation and the circumstances, I've learned the secret to being content. That secret is Jesus. Simply stated, it's Jesus. How do we remain content? How do we learn and practice being content? It's when it's a focus on Jesus. 
Joy is a common thing. Joy and rejoicing is a common theme Paul gives throughout this letter to the early church of Philippi. Remember his situation, though. He's in prison without freedom, yet he shows how we can be content and still have joy. And I'm convinced that you cannot enjoy life, truly enjoy life. You can have happy moments, right? Doug's having them right now. I've got to get off this Doug boat thing. <laughs> it just isn't helping. We can have happy moments, but I don't think you can truly enjoy life until you are content in life. And what we just heard from Paul is you can't be content in life until Jesus is your life. Everything about your life until your entire world revolves around Jesus instead of the world. And what I don't have and what I wish I had and what they had and where they're at in life. It has to be completely around Jesus. Always around Jesus. And here's why Paul can say that. I don't know what it means to be in need the way Paul knows what it needs to be. It means to be in need. Right? I've not been in prison. I, I, I can't say some of the things that he has said. But because of his life experience, he knows what it's like to truly not have. Beyond that, before he met Jesus, he knew what it was like to be on the other side of Jesus, actually against Jesus. So he says, I know what it's like to not be with Jesus. And until you have never been with Jesus on the level that Paul has, you don't know how much you truly need him. We could say that in any area of our life. Until you truly don't have, you don't know that Jesus is really all you need. And we get to that place, hopefully, of learning to be content when we can say that. You know what? No matter what happens in my life, as long as I have Jesus, as long as my world revolves around Jesus, doesn't mean I have to be happy about it. Doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to grow and strive. That We're not talking complacency. We're talking contentment. He says, in any situation... I've learned Jesus is all I need, and he will get me through. It's a focus. We talked about that last week a little bit, of what we focus on. He says we have to focus on Jesus. He's truly all we need. Right? We, we kind of all have that void in our life, and we could go around the room, and we could all share, yeah, right now in this season of my life, man, I feel like this is missing. We, we all have that. We're not fully complete until we get to heaven with Jesus. But that void that you feel that we all have we try to fill it with so many other things, but it continues to leave us dissatisfied. We're not content unless it's completely filled with him. Now, you would expect a, a preacher to say that on a Sunday morning, but that's what we get from Paul. And his life experience, that's what he figured out. That's what he learned over his life experience and what we know about Jesus. He said all of that stuff that we try to fill in the void with, it doesn't satisfy Jesus is truly all we need. So let's put some handlebars on. Like, what does that actually mean? How do we actually do that? What, is it, what has Paul done in his life that actually helps us learn and grow to being content? There's a few things here. If you want to write them down, these might be helpful for you. The first one is quit comparing. Quit comparing. There's about four areas, kind of buckets, I would say, that we tend to compare our lives in with other people. The first one is the material stuff. It's finances. It's all the stuff. The cars, the houses, what you wear, what you have. It's the stuff. The vacations that some people get to go on. Yeah, I'm going to send Doug this message when he gets back. No, I'm going to send it to him while he's on his boat. That's what I'm going to do. It's all the stuff, right? It's the material stuff. 
We, we compare my stuff versus your stuff. We also compare relationships. Well, man, they just have the perfect marriage. Do you see everything that they post? They go on date nights every single week. We don't even talk to each other that much. I mean, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff. Or you look at kids, right? Uh, the kids and, and how perfect they are and all the awards that they get. Nobody posts all the spankings that they give throughout the week. Ah, here we go. Selfie with the spanking. <laughs> Nobody does that. But we compare ourselves with this picture-perfect kid with somebody in somebody else's life. So we compare our relationships with one another. We also compare just personally, right? We could talk self-image, how you view yourself, what you look like, what you sound like, all of that that fills in all of our self-image. And then also just circumstantial, right? Your environment, Maybe your job. We compare my job and your job. We compare, well, your family dynamic and my family dynamic. And, and we compare our circumstances. They're very different, and we compare them. Therefore, we end up not being content because we always want what everybody else has. Right? I see this in my kids all the time. This, this is Cole. We have, I have three kids. Uh, they can have three. Connor is six. Cole is three. And Collins is almost two. And this is Cole's bike. Notice he's still on training wheels. He's three. He needs to be on training wheels. And uh, for the longest time, he was great with that. We'd go to the park, and our boys would just ride around and be great. But then something happened to Connor. Connor learned how to ride a bike without training wheels, which was great. I mean, that's, that's a goal. We, we want our kids to eventually learn to ride a bike without training wheels. And so Cole hates riding bikes now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Cole, let's go ride bikes. He's like, no, I want to ride the red bike, which is Connor's big bike without training wheels. I'm like... Yeah, he's six. You're three. This is a three-year-old bike. He says, well, I don't want to ride that bike. I said, I didn't ask if you wanted to. I'm just telling you the, the laws of gravity still work on you regardless whether you want it to or not. <laughs> so let's go ride bikes, and, and you will learn, and you'll grow, and, and it'll eventually happen. But right now, you're on a bike with training wheels. Well, take my training wheels off. And I'm like, I'm, I, I don't know what else to say to him. It's interesting how his perspective of riding bikes changed when he saw somebody else's situation change. I mean, here's a three-year-old discovering discontentment at a very, very early age. But we do the same thing, don't we? We sit in our bike <laughs> with training wheels, and we're perfectly fine with it for a little bit. And then we see somebody else, and we're like... I don't like my bike anymore. I want their bike. I'm going to do whatever I can to get I'm not going to be happy until I get that bike. Right? And it sounds childish, but at the very root of it, it is. And, and understand, what I'm trying to teach my son, Cole, is this is the season of life you, you're in. You, you need to be on training wheels right now. There probably will become a, a, there will probably be a day where you don't need them anymore, but right now, that's the reality. That, that is where you are at. Embrace it. Be okay with it. Be content with that. And I would say the same thing to us. I think that's what Paul is telling us. We have to quit comparing and say, okay, if this is the season of my life or if this is my life, this is the, the cards that I've been dealt, okay. Again, there's a difference between being content and being complacent. It doesn't mean you, you are just, well, whatever. This is my life forever can't do anything about it. It's like, no, let's grow. Let's move towards it. But you can move and grow and develop while still remaining and holding on to being content. You might be in a season of life that you're currently not content with, 
But God's saying, that's the season of life you need to be in right now. Or maybe it's from, from consequences. Life has consequences. Maybe, okay, I need to be content with where I'm at. This is where life has led me. I'll figure it out. I'll grow from it. I'll learn from it. I'll move forward from it. But right now, this is where I'm at. And don't worry about where everybody else is at. We're not people pleasers. We please, we please God. We aim to please God. And if we don't have a heart that is content, it leads to envy. Envy is very, very dangerous. Envy, jealousy, those are, a, those are dangerous places to be. And let me show you why. James chapter 3, verse 14. I want you to listen to the, the seriousness, the weight of envy and what it actually leads to. I believe... Uh, Again, see, when we begin to compare, it leads into this discontentment, which leads into envy, and here's what James says about it. But if you harbor bitter envy, that means if you hang on to it, if I don't let it go, if I'm, if I'm not content and I harbor this bitterness and this envy because of what everybody else has and what everybody else is and where everybody else is at and I'm not, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Look at this, such wisdom, he's being sarcastic there, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. But look, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Envy is demonic. That's pretty harsh, would you agree? That's heavy. Verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. All of a sudden, this Content, discontent has become a little bit of a bigger deal in our hearts. When we harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition, what does envy and bitterness and selfish ambition look like? It looks just like this. When we sit on our tricycle and we say, well, I don't like this anymore. I want what they have. It sounds so normal because that's normal in our culture. But what we see in scripture is it has devastating impacts. So I don't know what that means for you. I mean, I'm not telling you to throw away social media. Maybe, though. Not, I don't know how to help you learn and grow in your contentment other than starting there. Stop comparing. Kill comparison. Quit comparing with other people. Focus on where you are at, where God has you. Not saying it is a happy season necessarily, but yes, we can find joy even in any situation. Remember what Paul said? Here's the secret to it. In all circumstances, we can learn to be content because if Jesus is the center, he'll get us through. So we have to quit comparing. That's the first one. Second one is to start thanking. Gratitude does a lot with our hearts. James mentioned that, that it's a heart posture problem when we have envy, bitterness, selfish ambition. So to shift our heart, to move our heart in the other direction, we have to start being grateful Instead of trying to just be gratified in life, we need to start being grateful in life. Shift our focus. Paul even starts that way. If you go over to chapter one, it's how he begins. Verse three, chapter one. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. See, he begins his letter to the early church thanking God for them. While he's in chains, he still finds things to be grateful for and thankful for. It's our heart Posture, Proverbs 15, 15 says this, for the despondent, 
You know, the word just describes it, the despondent, the, the, the person that has the heavy heart or, or the attitude that is not grateful, which is the complainer, the comparison person. For the despondent, the hopeless, every day brings trouble. But for the happy heart, life is a continual feast. Now, what's interesting is the despondent and the happy heart doesn't say anything about their situations or their life. All it focuses on is their heart. For the despondent, every day is trouble. Every day is a problem. Every day is terrible. For the happy heart, the one that is thankful, the one that has plenty to be grateful for, man, life is a continual feast. Here's how I, I see that. And it, it, you got to answer this question in your mind. Do you live in a world where you are given or do you live in a world where you deserve? Gift versus deserve. If you live in a world where life is given, we're thankful a lot. If you live in a world where you deserve a lot, we compare and complain a lot. Think of it this way. Uh, most likely we were all raised in some form or fashion with this statement from our parents or grandparents that anytime someone gives you a gift, you always say, that's exactly right, it's the polite thing to do. It's the respectful thing to do. It's the nice thing to do. Even if you don't like the gift, what do you say? Yeah, you just say it like, thanks. Just do one of those. But I still said it, Mom. Right? If you're given a gift, no matter what you say, thank you. Now, when you get your paycheck, if you're working, you get a paycheck, you look at the paycheck and you say, that's it? They, they didn't see how hard I worked? I am worth way more than that. I'm going to find me another job that actually values me and my work. See the difference there? I've never, ever, personally or experienced or seen anybody, when they get paid from their employer, thank you. <laughs> this... You didn't have to, but you did. It means the world to me. Thank you. Oh, can't wait to, uh, you know what? I'm going to write you a thank you note for this. I've never done that. I've never seen that. Why? Because I worked for that. I deserved it. And if I don't get paid on time, guess what? I'm writing emails. I'm calling my bank. What's going on? Right? Do you live in a world where you constantly are just in a deserve mentality? Like you deserve everything that you have. And if you don't have it, you deserve to have it. Versus, man, God has given me gifts. The people around me have given me so much. I have so much more to be thankful for. You see the difference there? Do you live in a world where you are given, or do you live in a world where you think you deserve? If you live in a world where you deserve, envy, discontentment will reign in your heart. Third one, be preoccupied with other people. Be preoccupied with others. Let me ask you a question. Please don't answer this. If God were to bless somebody else way more than you, would you be willing and able to celebrate that person? That's a hard one. All the, the Christian in me wants to say, oh, yeah, of course, celebrate with others. But the other part of me wants to say, no. <laughs> like, why them and not me? Right? That's our tendency. See, we have to start looking at the world around us as God's kingdom not my kingdom. Are we building my kingdom or are we building God's kingdom? And we have to be willing to celebrate other people, be preoccupied with other people, be others focused. Jesus gave us that as a command. John 15, he says this, he says, my commandment is this, love one another. But notice what he tags on the end with, love one another as, say it with me, I have loved you. Jesus loved us with such a sacrificial and selfless love. 
He's saying, do the same thing. Get rid of that selfish ambition. We even see that in Philippians chapter two. Get rid of that selfish ambition. Be preoccupied with other people. So when we do things like disaster relief, you know, if you go on the trip with John, or you just take time to pray for other people, you'll be amazed at how your heart posture begins to shift to an, a level of being content when we're focused and preoccupied with other people. And that's why we do things like Serve Week, to help shift our hearts off of all of our training wheeled bikes that we don't want right now and wish we had something else, but we serve our community and other people around us for a little bit. We're like, it's amazing what changes in our hearts. It's learning how to be content by being preoccupied with others, by serving others. Find ways to do that. Find ways. People ask, ask me often just as being a pastor, like, well, like, why do people have to volunteer for church? Like, isn't that supposed to be like for them to get fed? I'm like, yeah, but honestly, when you volunteer for church or the community or schools or whatever, you volunteer in church, it helps get something done, but it really doesn't benefit me or our organization that, that much. What it does is it changes your heart. That's the reason we do it. That's the reason we push it, not so that things get done. It's so that your heart changes like this, like Paul's, so that we all do that. You've got to find a way to be preoccupied with other people. So find ways to serve others, to be focused on other people more than on yourself. You'll be amazed at how your heart begins to shift. Last one, last one I want you to see. Pursue Jesus more than, and you fill in the blank, more than anything else. Pursue Jesus more than anything or anyone else. Paul even alludes to this right before he gets to chapter four in chapter three. I want you to listen to what he says here. He's described, he just finished, if you kept reading earlier in chapter three, he describes his life on, on the prestige that he had and the status that he had and, and the level of leader that he was in, in Judaism. I mean, he was a top, top guy, well-respected, well-known, had the wealth, he had it all. And then he switches and says, but look at this, verse seven. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value, infinite value, you can't even put a number on it, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as, and say this word with me, garbage, counting it all as garbage, just so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. There's a perspective shift. You talk about a man that pursued everything but Jesus, and now pursues Jesus above all else. Just so that he could say, I'm with Jesus, so I could be one with him, so I could gain Christ, so I could know Christ, the infinite value of knowing him, pursue him above all things. Doesn't mean you can't have other things. No, of course not. I have met very wealthy people that are very content. Met very wealthy people that are very discontent. Met very poor people that are extremely content met very poor people that have so much envy and bitterness in their heart that they're paralyzed. Pursue Jesus more than anything and everything else. Sometimes we put false expectations on Jesus. Let me just clear it up. Jesus did not come so that you and I could achieve all of our hopes and dreams. That hurts a little, doesn't it? Jesus did not come 
and sacrifice himself on the cross, defeat sin and death, and raise back to life three days later so that you and I could have a picture-perfect life that we can post on Instagram. He came to give us hope, true hope. He came to give us love, true love. He came to help get us through this life, not to give us the life that we wish we had on earth. Allow him to be the king of your life, which means he's in charge. You've heard me say this before, and I'm gonna end with this. He's the king and I'm not. He's the king and I'm not, which means I pursue my king. There's an infinite value on knowing my king and being with my king more than anything else. And yes, I hope Doug has a great time on his boat this week. <laughs> Nothing is more important than me knowing my Savior and my Savior knowing me. Whatever you wish you had in life, it's okay to have wishes and hopes and dreams. May they not be elevated above Jesus. May he be it. For we've learned the secret to being content in all things, in all things. I can make it through because Jesus strengthens me. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for giving us what we need, for taking care of us, for providing so that we don't know what it truly means to be in want on a spiritual level. Sure, we, we could always want more. Our wish list can be forever. But what you did for us makes all of that look like garbage. We place an infinite value on just knowing you, our King, our Lord, our Savior. So Jesus said, not just in this moment and not just this week, but may our heart shift for the rest of our lives as we learn to be content. And we see the amazing, the amazing results of a heart focused on you. You're the king, we are not. In Jesus' name, amen.